Welcome to Mysterious Universe Plus Season 25, Episode 25. Coming up on this show, we've got the Trap of the Desert Dwellers, Tulpas and the Blue Camaro, and the Greylick Secrets of a Magical Mountain. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is under the weather, Aaron Wright. Oh, I don't like talking about when I get sick, but man, when I go down, do I just, oh, I crash. Barely with us today. <laughs> I'm not... Uh, you know the problem is, it's like I had this ter- I had this fever last night, and I I know I have a fever because I woke up and I thought there was someone standing in the bedroom, and whenever <laughs> that happens, I'm just like, okay, I know I've got a massive fever. All four of us have it. Both my kids have it. Like we're all like under the weather. It's not coof. Where'd you get it? Uh, the kids at school, of you course. Okay. Yeah, of course. So, but look, I I put together a show, so <laughs> a show will be delivered. Well, you should go first because in about twenty minutes, I think you're gonna crash. <laughs> so it could be a thirty minute show. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be okay. Although, funnily enough, I can't hear anything. I can't even hear my voice coming oh, back. So if I sound sucks. weird, that that's how you know why. But yeah, look, let's... Um, actually, what have you got coming up first? And then we'll jump into the show. Uh, I was looking at this book called uh, Salve, Salve Regina. And it's on Montserrat. Montserrat. Montserrat? Yeah, the, the famous mountain in, in Spain. Yeah. And there's a, supposedly all this Graelic energy there. What's Graelic energy? Well, uh, energy from the Holy Grail. Because there's this legend, well, there's legends that the Holy Grail is there in the mountain somewhere, yeah, and yeah. that the mountain is hollow. It's kind of like a Spanish Mount Shasta. Okay. El Shasto, we'll call El Shasto. it. <laughs> <laughs> and the author here had that promise. His name's Antoine Alberola, and uh, that's what I was looking for, this kind of El Shasto story. Um, and it's very disappointing. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> very, until you get to the stories of all the people that have vanished. From this mountain. Well, people just disappear searching for it. Yeah. Like there's a tale of a guy who uh, he just like tons of stories where people just park their cars, leave the keys in there, leave all their stuff, leave their phone, leave their wallet and just head off into the mountain and you never see them again. That's a really strange phenomenon because I was reading about that today, actually. I didn't end up going into it in great detail, but I, I was looking around because I'm going to go into this story about desert disappearances, you know, and I might have a reason for, for why that's occurring. I saw that a while back, Brent published an article called Strange Cases of Pilots Who Vanished in the Desert and Left Their Planes Behind. And um, I re- recall that Charles Ford published a story in night, well, it was from 1924 about two Royal Air Force men. Uh, one was a Lieutenant William uh, Conway Day and the other was Douglas Ramsey Stewart. These guys were stationed in Iraq and on July the 24th of that year, they went off on a reconnaissance flight, right? It was just a normal reconnaissance flight. There was nothing unusual about it. They were seasoned professionals. Everything was going smoothly and they were fine, but they never returned. And they just simply vanish. Now, of course, when something like this happens, they send out a search party, they go searching the desert. And yes, this is a vast, desolate location. But after a few hours, they found this missing plane. Crashed? No, it was just sitting in the middle of the desert wasteland, well off the planned course, but it was fine. Did they have fuel? Full of fuel? No. It was clear that it hadn't crashed, it was had landed normally, and there was no sign of the two airmen. But this is where, I mean, that's strange in itself. Why would they even stop? Why would they even land? Well, this is what we don't know. Did one of them need to pee? <laughs> why would it just pee out the window? I mean, you can't pee out the window of a plane. Why do you have to land? Just, it would all blow back into the, the cabin. <laughs> You just open up the window a tiny little about it. Obviously, you've side. never tried it. No, I haven't tried peeing out of a plane, no. But things became even more unusual when they found all of the men's belongings in the aircraft, as well as their water. 
So they just landed, they'd behaved in this really odd paranormal yeah. fashion. It's like they were under the influence of something. It's, it's a real missing 411 checkbox yeah. of people that just leave all their stuff behind. Remember there was the case of the family here in, uh, well, they were in New South Wales, I think, and they just suddenly went on this oh, crazy the, the, road trip. the Trump family? Yeah, and just yeah. Left, left their phones behind, left their wallets, left all their clothes, didn't take anything with them, and just started driving across Australia Yeah, I looked, with no f- supplies or anything. It's bizarre. I looked into that only recently, and there's nothing about it. Like, there's nothing. Yeah. It was really, really strange. And when the family came home, and obviously the media was fascinated by this. I mean, I, I covered the story on the show, but I was looking for updates, and there's nothing. Like, they refused to talk about anything that happened. So there's stories from Montserrat where people have told their family and, you know, friends at a party that they've disappeared from that they've been called to the mountain. Oh. Something's been calling them, right. which, which gives you a clue. One guy that was recovered, and I'll tell this story later, he was so disoriented, like he had no idea where he was. He couldn't tell how he had gotten there or how he had any chance to get out of the wilderness on the mountain that he was that he was on. This helicopter spotted him. And when they finally lifted him out of there or when rescuers reached him, he told them he was sleeping in a cave with a black woman. What? Yeah, I'll get to that story. With the, the, the black it woman. Sounds, it sounds like those missing 411 style cases of where, remember the little girl that uh, was out in the wilderness and it was like, uh, it was a concern because she was missing. And there was a concern that there was going to be exposure and she could have parents. And she was fine. And when she came back, she was like, oh, I was just with the bear. I was like, what? <laughs> the bear? Like, and the girl was fine. Like, it's, it's really surreal, these sorts of cases. And going back to that plane story, right? This is something that Fort looked into in, in great detail. The men's footprints, they actually found these men's footprints and they traveled away from the aircraft. They were tracked for about 40 yards and then they just disappeared. Like the men had just vanished. So how do you do that? Mole people. Well, <laughs> I don't think it's mole, mole people. So I, don't, I don't think it's mole people. Um, you know, some people have speculated that this has an alien feel about it. Others have speculated that this is some type of interdimensional rift. Um, there's the idea as well out there that when people behave in these fashions, it's not so much like you were calling about the the allure or the call for you know going to these locations, but it is that the the magnetic or whatever it is, the energy anomalies that might generate interdimensional doorways in these locations actually interfere with a person's decision making abilities. Right. And so that's why, you know, you have these cases where they'll just land a plane and, and, and just just disappear. But this has happened multiple times. I mean, there was a story that came from nineteen fifty one from Arizona where there was a twenty six year old nurse by the name of June Walker. Her boyfriend was a 28-year-old World War II veteran. His name was Klaus Martens. They flew out in this two-seater Cessna. They were flying from East Los Angeles Airport. They're heading towards Blythe, Blythe, I believe, and they never arrived. And obviously people went searching for them. They were found about 100 miles southeast of their destination. It was 50 miles southeast of Yuma in Arizona. That was the closest town. And like the previous report, they landed the plane. It wasn't a wreck. It was in great condition. It had fuel. It was just plopped there. Now, that also put a piece of paper saying, going to make it on foot, and then had drawn an arrow in the sand. But the arrow that they had drawn was in the opposite direction of where the pilot should have known to go. Like, they went in the opposite direction. If they'd just flown for, like, the, as I said, the plane was fine. If they'd just flown for 10 more minutes, they would have made it to a town. Why would you land the plane and then why would you head in a direction which is going to be desert and isolated regions? Like, you're not going to survive it. I mean, maybe 
they're thinking that this is a good place to land, so we better take the opportunity because if we keep flying, there might not be a place to land. You're right. I see what you're saying, but there was nothing wrong with the aircraft. There was nothing to indicate that they were suffering from mechanical failure, uh, there was any concern, any emergency, and just like the previous case, their uh, footsteps were found to disappear after about three miles. Just vanished in the desert. Now, I know that you know, with the desert, maybe the sand can you know, blow, be blown away and, and that sort of thing can happen, but it's just a bit odd, like the way that people behave in this fashion, and you know, it wouldn't have been that long that you wouldn't be able to track them, and they're just, just gone. Is there a missing 411 landed an abandoned airplane edition <laughs> coming you know from what? David. Maybe David Pilata should look into that. I think that's actually a good idea. Although There's maybe, probably like three cases. Yeah, I was about to say, there's probably about two cases out there of which we've just covered. But uh, actually, this is a good springboard to go into a story that I want to mention that comes from Alexander Bushkov. And uh, I found this reference by uh, Paul Stonehill. He was talking about the Bermuda Triangle uh, of Iran. And this story relates back to World War II, but Alexander Bushkov was uh, essentially like, I wouldn't say the John Keel of uh, Soviet times, but uh, he was a paranormal investigator. He was well known in those circles over there and also respected of having some fascinating stories. He claims to have come in contact with the Soviet Sergeant Nikolai. Now, the Soviet Sergeant claims to have had a very unusual encounter during the Second World War. This relates to when the Soviets and the British troops were actually entering Iran and they were entering from, from both sides and things were very chaotic. But you know, it's the Middle East. When they went into the Middle East, it's this sparsely inhabited wilderness. And the Soviet side where they came in, they came across this place of sand dunes and it was completely unsuitable for any long-term habitation there at all. Like it was just, a, it's a desert. Like it's a unforgiving, barren, desolate desert. But what the Soviets were doing is they were obviously sending their uh, intel teams forward about an hour or two drive just to work out what was going on to see where the Arabs were and then to pull out and yeah. you know get their information. This uh, Sergeant Nikolai was told, uh, obviously because he was part of intelligence, to get in this little armoured personnel carrier and drive out for an hour into the desert. I think it was around you know, 50 miles or something. And uh, he gets in, he gets in with a lieutenant and he also gets in with uh, a driver. And the driver was called uh, Soma Shaskin. And uh, Soma Shaskin, he, um, they all get in the car and they drive off. Now, this was a totally uh, inappropriate vehicle, even though they're only doing intel. It was very, very thinly armored. It only had uh, one gun on the turret up the top, but essentially it was a four-wheel drive with a gun on the back. This is what this thing was. Uh, with armoured plating around it. They start driving, and they'll be driving for about an hour or so, and they encounter nothing. Like, there's just nothing as far as the eye can see except for this backwards desert area. And what is odd, though, is that they go to radio back to say, look, you know, we haven't found anything. We're heading back now. They don't get any radio uh, signal, nothing at all. Like, there's just clicks and pops and, and whirs and they're clearly in some radio dead zone. Like, there's something about this particular region which appears to be blocking the, the signal. Like, it's, it's more than just simply them being too far away from something. Something's blocking it, but that doesn't really matter until their engine starts malfunctioning. It starts coughing and howling and making noise, and they realise that the car is... It's, look, it's, the world, it's World War II. The car is very poorly insulated. It's very poorly sealed, and it's just sucking sand into everything. Like, there's just sand getting turned up into everything, and... They're thinking we're going to have to stop. We're going to have to get out and, and wash components in, in fuel to get rid of the sand. And they don't know what to do. But it essentially, um, it, the car is still working enough 
that they uh, grabbed hold of a compass and tried to find their way back because they were totally disoriented by this point. They'd lost radio contact. They no longer knew where they were because they were distracted by what was going on. The only way they could get back is by using this compass. They bring out the compass. The compass doesn't work. So there's like some anomaly here, which is affecting not only the radio, but also the compass. So the way that they find to go back, it's actually a really smart thing to do, is that they just find the original tracks of how they're driven in and start driving back over those tracks, over the fresh tracks. Now, they're going for a couple of minutes and the engine fails once again. And uh, Soma Shaskin gets into the engine. The engine's overheated. Um, You know, he was all distracted by it. But as the sergeant, Sergeant Nikolai, is sitting in the vehicle and, and watching, he says he sees something floating just above the surface of the sand. And he describes it as being this shape of uh, an oddly geometric circle that's moving up and over the landscape. Now he's watching this, and obviously it's, it's very hot out there, but maybe, like, he thought, maybe I'm suffering from sunstroke. Like, what am I seeing here? And as he's trying to process and think about what he's seeing, the lieutenant screams from behind him, it's crawling, it's crawling. And he's like, what? what?" And as he's just trying to orient himself and understand what's happening, this sudden soaring thick column of shaking yellow sand just bursts up right before them. It's this column. It's like this thick actual column that uh, pushes them backwards into the vehicle. And they're shocked. They don't understand what they're seeing. And they scurry to the side of the car and look at the window. And they said they can see this tall, moving, oblong mound, large enough to cover a human. Or a mole person. Or a mole person moving about in the landscape. It's like a pillar of sand. But maybe there's something inside. So it started off as this flat kind of circle. And it took off into this pillar-like shape. And it's trying to get into the vehicle. Now, it crawls for about 15 meters or so. And then just stopped. And then it started moving over the dunes. And they watched as it moved over dune by dune by dune. And the shape was slightly different. And as they're all kind of shocked and trying to understand, they realize that uh, Soma Shaskin, he's nowhere to be seen. No. He's nowhere to be seen. Was he outside the vehicle? Yes. He was checking the engine. And they said that there was this shrill kind of noise that was coming from the sand. Uh and they're wondering if he's inside it. Sandworm got him. Well, I don't know if it's a sandworm because you have heard of those stories of the Mongolian deathworms, but this seems to be something else. This seems to be some type of, I don't know, like a shape-shifting sand entity. It's it's just one of the most bizarre stories I've ever heard. So the lieutenant absolutely loses it. Like He um, goes inside and he starts panicking. Apparently he soils himself. Like, and you would be terrified experiencing something like this. Um, but they realize... Like, uh, Nikolai says it can't get into the car because if it wanted to get into the car, it would have by now. They can't. And every time they open the door just a little bit, another pillar of sand goes shooting up, up into the sky around them. So they um, try to uh, get rid of this thing. They can hear whistling and howling. They're on the radio. They're only getting, you know, static coming through once again. And they, they can't move. Their engine's done. Their engine's done. They can't move. They've got the hot heat, you know, from the sun beating down upon them. They don't know where Soma Shaskin's gone. Although later on, they find him lying on the ground. And so they pull him back to the vehicle and they, they get him on board the vehicle. When, when do they find him? So he was lying next to the vehicle. So he never went anywhere? So No, 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 no. Well, it, he wasn't there before. So this is the weird thing. It was like he was somehow... So the stopped. sandworm has had its way with him and then deposited him back wow. at the vehicle. But this is what's odd about <laughs> Did it. Did he have his pants on backwards? <laughs> well, that's not said. But the lieutenant that gives the order to the sergeant, 
He's like, fire on these things. Yeah, why haven't they done this already? So they start, It's the first thing you do. They do. They start firing on it. And you can imagine exactly what happens when you fire into sand. They're just firing into sand. And it's just going through the sand. <laughs> and the sand's just moving. Like Are they using moving. the turret? Yeah, they're using the gun on the top. And they're firing into the sand. And it's not making any difference whatsoever to these things. Now, these things drop back down. Wait, you're saying things. There's more than one of them. There's multiples of them. And it's like they've all targeted these guys. And it could be an indication as to what this location is. It appears to be maybe it's some type of feeding ground, a trap of some sort. Uh, and maybe that's what you know plays with the uh, mag- what appears to be the energy or magnetic anomaly that's in this region. Because these things, uh, they look out and they're looking around the truck and they go, hang on, there's belt buckles, there's bottles, there's pieces of metal. There's nothing organic. Like there's nothing organic at all on the ground. So whatever has been here seemingly has been consumed by this. Eaten. So alive. One of the men. But Shashaskin or whatever his name is, is fine. Yeah, he seems to be fine. But what becomes quite gross about this is that one of the men, I don't know which one it was, but one of the men um, has to relieve himself and he doesn't know what to do. <laughs> so funny that we're talking about peeing out a window because <laughs> he dumps out the side of the car. Like he dumps out the side of the car. And apparently, according to the report, the carpet-like geometric form on the ground comes over and you see this little edge kind of come up on it. Like it's this little edge of sand. And he goes, and just starts consuming <laughs> all of his leavings. So they're consume, it's consuming anything that's organic, obviously. But it didn't eat the guy. I know. I don't know what's going on. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But maybe It's the- happy to eat poo, but it won't <laughs> eat the guy that the poo came from. It's crazy. Like, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, the only thing I was thinking about this story is I was like, could this be possible that just two guys killed the other guy? Or we're trying to come up with a story to come, I don't know. Like, I wasn't. Oh, so, wait, sure. so one of them dies. That's a, no, no, a spoiler. No, no, that's, no, they don't. But that's what I was thinking as I started going through this story. Um, but ultimately, it gets to this point where they're panicking. Like, they're, they're so worried about what they should do. Uh, but two Soviet planes show up and they're standing on top of one of them standing up on top of the turret and he's waving his arms. And the turrets actually, oh, sorry, the, the planes actually, you know, dip their wings and they send armored vehicles. So these armored vehicles arrive. And when the armored vehicles arrive, Nikolai doesn't know what to do because he doesn't want to say, oh, be careful, there's poop eating sand monsters on the ground. So he says that, oh, there's mines everywhere. There's mines. So don't, you know, don't get out of your vehicle. And apparently this uh, other Intel guy just, was looking at him like he didn't believe him. He was like, why would there be mines all the way out here? But because he saw apparently the look on his face, he's like, fine, you know, I'll just drive up. And they transfer the guys into the new vehicle and they go home. One of them is so emotionally scarred, he ends up in a psychiatric hospital as a result of this. Um, but Nikolai uh, starts talking to the intel officers and the intel officers start questioning him about these things. And he starts going, oh, uh, no, I was just suffering from sunstroke. It's just, it's, it's definitely not. Because the guy that was crazy was saying, we are attacked by sand monsters. These sand monsters are eating everything. And, um, you know, it was just fortunate that he actually, Nikolai felt that the intel guy knew more than he was letting on. But because he was like, oh, no, I just got sunstroke, everything went quiet and it was able to be released or the story got out in the 1980s through um, Alexander. So I thought, okay, that's that's kind of strange. And I wanted to look for other stories that kind of... So did you Google poop-eating sandworms? No. Just saw what, what turns look, up? There are plenty of stories out there that are consistent with there being uh, odd uh, mists that seem to consume things. Uh, there are The only thing that comes up with sand is, as I said, those uh, Mongolian. Mongolian deathworms. Yeah. And the Mongolian deathworms are such a, a controversial topic. You know, it's odd. But it does tie in, right, 
which I know it's a different desert, but then you've got the Lut Desert, which is in Iran. And uh, in the Lut Desert, they archaeologists, they found this small little village in the 1940s. And this village absolutely baffled archaeologists because it appeared that it was a site that had been created somewhere in the fourth millennium BC. So it's an old, old site. Mm. But what's strange about it is that the doorways, the ceilings, and the width of the tunnels, uh, and all the instruments inside the homes are made specifically for inhabitants estimated to have averaged only around three to four feet in height. They're like these little... Little dudes. Little dwarves like, that were of diminutive stature. What's that got to do with the worms? So this is the thing, right? These little people seemingly disappeared in a panic. They left items of what were apparently of, of value... They left what appeared to be dinners, and when they left so rapidly... There was a coffee pot that was still steaming. No, I'm when not the that. I don't think there's a 4,000-year-old coffee pot that was found. <laughs> but they sealed up the doorways and covered them in mud as oh. they fled. Now, they've archaeologists have never found one of these bodies. They've never found one of these miniature humans. And I'm like... Worms got them. Yeah. What, <laughs> did, did the sand entities get them? I mean, we are in the Middle East, and you know, we're hearing this story. Is this what's going on? Is it's that the favourite food of a, a sandworm, is a, a little guy. Well, they're the, the equivalent of the dodo, because they completely wiped them out. Like, mm. obviously, they were delicious, and then just, just wiped them out. It's tough in the past being a little guy. If you weren't being hunted by giant storks, <laughs> you were being eaten alive by sandworm. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, But I'll link to the full thing in the show notes uh, at mysteriousuniverse.org so you can check out the whole story. There's, uh, there's more uh, very you know, intricate details that come up about that, but it's just uh, it's a fascinating story and probably one of the most unusual types of entities that I've ever heard of. Like, I've never heard of actual sand entities behaving in that fashion before. But while I was uh, looking for similar stories... I just wanted to pull up this story for you, which was the haunted trenches of World War One. while we're on the topic of, of military stories. And, um, you know, there are plenty of incredible paranormal experiences that happen, happen during times of war. And I think, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, ghostly encounters and hauntings and that kind of stuff, uh, as you know, whenever there is heightened emotion, it seems to generate these sorts of experiences. It seems to enhance them. Um, and that's why you have, you know, haunted battlefields and people having these experiences. And um, this particular story, though, it piqued my interest because it relates to uh, essentially these ghosts that would appear on the battlefield to save their fellow soldiers. So, for example, this thing really blew my mind. Uh, it relates to a grey cloud. So it's like this, again, like this weird mist which is involved in it. But in 1915, this came from a French engineer who told the tale to an American clergyman who described that they were out in no man's land. So they were on the battlefield. And when they're on the battlefield, they saw this strange gray cloud rolling towards them, but it was seemingly being directed. It was seemingly an intelligent cloud. Now, it came forward, and when it came forward, it kind of broke. And as it broke, there was this sudden uproar in the trenches all around, and the strangest of things happened. Out of the mist came a figure, and this figure seemed to be wearing a special protection uniform that was worn by the Royal Army Medical Corps. So it's 1915. It's the First World War. You've got these terrible gas attacks that are taking place. Like the First World War in the trenches truly was absolute hell. And like the gas attacks were just abhorrent that was going on. But this cloud, this wasn't a cloud of gas where this soldier had come out. And even though he was part of seemingly the Royal Army Medical Corps, he was actually speaking with a French accent. And on his belt... He had uh, all these small hooks and suspended on the hooks were these tin cups. 
and he carried a bucket with him. And what, like, what's this guy doing? He's out on a battlefield. There's poisonous gas that's everywhere around. He's emerged out of his own cloud. Everyone else is being gassed in the trenches, and he's carrying this bucket. Now, he slid down into the trench and began removing these cups individually. He dipped each of these cups into his bucket and passed it out to the soldiers, telling them, he's like, drink it, drink it quickly, like, drink it now. Now, the engineer who uh, received this potion as well said that it was extremely salty. It was almost too salty to swallow. But this guy was like, no, 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 you have to drink it. You have to drink it right now. And they did. Now, what's incredible about this particular story, all those men that received this salty liquid were not injured by the gas. All the other men that were in that trench that were hit by gas and didn't have this either died or suffered severe long-lasting effects from the gas. The guy got out of the trench, walked back into the mist and disappeared and was never seen again. Is there multiple reports of this? Like, is there yeah, multiple reports people from it. the people who survived? Multiple people witnessed this and got this this fluid. Like, what what is this stuff? Is there some type of... Uh, angel of the battlefield. Yeah, well, I mean, Mons, you know, the angel of Mons is something that comes up quite frequently with these sorts of stories. But this one was kind of an outlier. Um, there was another one, though. There was also the, uh, the Battle of Verdun. And this is one of the longest lasting battles of the entire war. It was bloody, it was merciless, and it was between French and German forces. And there was this story that a man dressed in old-fashioned gear from the 1870s Franco-Prussian War would suddenly appear out of a cloud. He would just suddenly appear on the field. And what he would do? He would go and knock the weapons out of the hands of the enemy or go and trip them. What are these things doing? He would push uh, soldiers out of the way they were about to be physically harmed. There's one particular soldier that all of a sudden was grabbed by this guy. This guy knocked him to the ground. And he's like, what did you do that for? As soon as he was knocked to the ground, he sees a bullet go whizzing past where his head would have been. So it saved his life. This guy as well offered everyone a drink of water and then vanished into a cloud. Was it salty, super salty? No, that wasn't mentioned about what it was. But, you know, why? I mean, are these stories legends that are coming? Are they just, you know, uh, urban legends from the war that have gotten out of control? But it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like there are multiple people that witnessed this, and there are multiple examples of it throughout different parts of the war, particularly World War I. Uh, There's a really great example as well of a young bloke that uh, was... I think he was on uh, the battlefield. His name was Corporal Will Bird. He was from the 42nd Battalion. Uh, He was at Vimy Ridge, I'm sorry. This was April of 1917. Now, he says that he'd fallen asleep in the the cold in this dugout, but was awoken by these two warm hands that were pressing just very gently upon him. And he looks up. He's like, oh, what? And he realizes it's his brother. But his brother, Steve, had been killed at action in France two years prior. Oh. He's like, what are you doing here? Now, the apparition of the brother brother just stood wordlessly and silently walked off, but was beckoning him. He was like, like using his hands to indicate to come with him. So, of course, Will follows his dead brother just in time to get out of there before an enemy shell slams into the bunker and completely obliterates and kills everyone inside. I mean, just the luck that these people have. Uh, then there was a similar tale that was reported in December of 1915 in the trenches of Ypres. Uh, this was 2nd Lieutenant uh, Mark and William Spigot, and he was from the 3rd Battalion. He was taking cover from the enemy onslaught, and this was a bloodbath this particular day. And in fact, his close friend had just died that day. So, But even though obviously he was upset about his friend dying, he wasn't focused on that. He was focused on his own survival. But as he's there cowering under the booming shells and the gunfire outside, his dead friend suddenly appears to all of them. And apparently this was witnessed by multiple sources as well. He walks over to this particular section of the dugout and points at the earth 
before evaporating, right? Like, why? Like, why would you point at the earth and then evaporate? Does so, that mean a shell's going to land there? That's or what is I that thought. where I have to go? That's what I thought, yeah. So William doesn't know what to do, but what he does is he grabs his little spade and uh, or shovel and he digs up this spot. He finds a load of enemy explosives that had a timer set to blow them to uh, smithereens in 13 hours. Oh, so it was Very lucky. Crafty. Yeah, but this this apparition of his friend from that day had come through and had saved their life. I mean, stories like this, as much as they sound like they're extremely surreal, you just hear them repeated over and over and over. And of course, only recently, because I was looking into the work of SBR, I mean, the whole idea of, of crisis apparitions, it's the same kind of thing. And it's being reported by people that are on the ground that are experiencing it. So I think there's certainly something to these stories. But look, I'll link to all of them in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org, so you can check it out for yourself. But, uh, yeah, odd things. Before I talk about Montserrat, do you want to hear the story entitled, where is it, Tulpas and the Blue Camaro? Yeah, please. <laughs> this is from a new book that just came out. It's uh, from the UFO researcher Diane Tessman. It's called Beings from Beyond. They are here. And she tries to, depo- you know, posit explanations for ET activity. And one of the chapters, she's talking about tulpas and she's throwing out this idea that maybe paranormal activity that comes from or seems to result from encounters with UFOs and the like mm-hmm. is tulpas created by the beings themselves. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. So greys or extraterrestrials create thought forms yeah, that I've, they unleash upon humanity. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's, that's that's her theory. Uh, I didn't spend it too much time on the reasoning, but she said, I do have an experience of my own in which a tulpa manifested from somewhere, and her experience begins with her best friend, Sally. She's been friends with this woman for over 45 years. She said the first evening they met was way back in 1976, and she was introduced by a mutual friend, and they were standing in a parking lot in Tampa, Florida, after having dinner together, discussing their love of Star Trek and UFOs. Mm -hmm. And she said, suddenly I noticed a strange craft or object in the sky just a bit to the east. The sun was low in the west, and basically what they saw, which looked like molten silver, was a triangle, but the corners were all rounded, like softened off. And it's just hanging there in the sky. It's about 2,000 feet in altitude. No wings or anything. And for seven or eight minutes, they're just standing like mouths agape, staring at this triangle hovering in the sky. Are other people around looking up and seeing? No, it's like after dinner, so it's pretty late. Mm-hmm. There must have been other people that saw it, but, you know, the, the the parking lot was pretty empty. Yeah. And this woman she's just met, who she eventually became friends with, Sally, says, you know what, that's almost like it's right over my mother's house. It's just in that direction where her mother lives. Then all of a sudden, as soon as she says this, it disappears. It just vanishes out of the sky. And they're very excited, of course. They're discussing their sighting, but then eventually it's getting late. They jump in their cars and they drive home. Now she says, uh, Sally and her, of course, became close friends. They would talk on the phone often. She lived in Miami and Diane lived in St. Petersburg on the west coast of Florida. Mm -hmm. But again, they, they talk on the phone all the time. So... Beginning in 1977, she said a few months after their sighting in the parking lot, her friend Sally confided in her and said she was being harassed by creatures who she called the two tulpas. She said they were human. They just look like regular men. Uh, She told me about a number of bizarre phone calls, Diane said, which made little sense to her, but had a strange 
technical sound to them. Like there was weird distortion and bleeps and bloops in the background this and is... a distant voice saying, we want to meet you and be like, bloop, 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 bloop. It sounds very men in black though. Yeah, we want to meet you. And she told Diane one evening after work at a hospital in Miami, a man in the parking lot tried to shove her into his car. What, now, he tried to abduct her? He, she was almost abducted. She said there was another man driving. She said these men looked like they were ready to shoot a space opera movie. They were incredibly handsome. They were wearing a bizarre amount of facial makeup, <laughs> like David, David Bowie or something, just covered in weird makeup. And their clothes were all future-like. It's like Space Liberace. <laughs> Yeah, Space Liberace. And they drove a bright red Lamborghini. What? That's exactly like the Bill Tompkins stuff. It's just like, who has a Lamborghini anyway? It doesn't even make sense. Who's driving a red Lamborghini? And it was just so bizarre. And she said to Diane, she says, I know, you're going to think I'm crazy. This just sounds so insane. Uh, and, and Diane's like, yes, it did occur to me that my friend was insane. But she she explains that, Sally managed to get away. She, like, shoved herself away from these strange men. She eventually made it to her own car and she sped home. Well, it's not usual for someone to try to abduct someone in a Lamborghini. I know. It's not the it's, ideal no, car it's for abduction. a beat-up van. And if there's already someone driving, where are you putting the person you're abducting? <laughs> it's, it's a two-seated car. There's nowhere to put them. It doesn't make sense at all. So the next week, uh, her and her husband, they moved to San Diego uh, in California and... They were they moved their plan to move ahead a month because of this encounter she had. Like she was so paranoid and terrified about what she'd gone through and that these men were going to hunt her down. Mm. She said to her husband, We've got to move now. Did she report it to the police? That's I mean, that's the first thing I thought, but it's not mentioned here in the story. Maybe it was so surreal for her that she knew that they couldn't help. Yeah, I mean, it's an odd description of the abductors yeah. to be dressed in sci-fi clothes with heaps of makeup and a red Lamborghini. Anyway, uh, Diane and Sally continued to talk on the phone regularly after she moved. And uh, one day, taking a nap in their new home in San Diego, Sally woke up to find the strange man who had grabbed her in Miami standing in her bedroom. And she said he was puffing on a cigarette, but in a really strange way. Probably back to front. Well, she thought that or maybe he's European or he's, he's Russian or German or something because... She had seen foreign films and she said, well, the way they hold their cigarettes is a bit different to the way Americans hold their cigarettes. But this guy was holding his cigarette in such a bizarre way. But she never explains what was weird about it. Like, was he using his toes? Like, how was he holding the cigarette that was weird? Anyway, she couldn't remember what happened next, but suddenly she found herself alone in the bedroom and 45 minutes is missing. Oh, here we go. Yep. Production scenario. She reported that these two uh, buffoons, she started calling them, showed up several more times. They again tried to kidnap her and she had a bruise on her arm afterwards. Physical evidence, she said. Sally noted, though, that they never lasted very long. They would be there seemingly on a mission to, to do something, to get her or do communicate something. But then they would lose steam, she said. It's like they would lose energy whatever was maintaining them would fade out. And she said one of them, she actually started to see fade out of existence. Like it was losing its will, losing its energy. If they're a, I guess, um, 
I shouldn't say psychologically advanced, but maybe um, psi-advanced civilization. Maybe they do know how to create tulpas to go and do their dirty work for them. I mean, how great would that be? Because they just disappear, no evidence left behind? Yeah. Gone. It's just an entity in another dimension. No physical evidence at all. So Diane said, look, I, I, I had my moments doubting my friend. Uh, was she just lying to entertain me and not the good person I thought she was? But she does say this. She says... Over the past 45 years that, I, that I've known her, I didn't find that she'd lied about anything else. And besides, after several years of trying to encounter Sally's tulpas, I did have one fleeting but strange encounter with one of them. So Diane says Sally's encounters lasted for four years and by then uh, Diane and her daughter had also moved to San Diego, so they were close by and... She was meeting up with Sally one day. They were walking in this park in, in Mira Mesa, this suburb of San Diego. And there was this pedestrian footbridge that goes over this small wash. And there was a, a park that was being constructed nearby. And they're walking along this path. And as usual, they're discussing UFOs and Star Trek and aliens. And they were reminiscing about that UFO they had seen in Tampa, which for Sally had started off this whole thing with these two strange men showing up. So they're crossing this pedestrian bridge and she said they glanced back in the direction which they had come from and they noticed a blue Camaro suddenly parked inside the park there. And she said it should have parked along the street because there was nowhere really for the cars to come into the, the playground park. Like it's not, you know, you don't drive a car in the playground. And so what, had it just materialised? It's like it was just suddenly there and they hadn't seen it before. It was strange. They hadn't heard it arrive. It was just very strange. Sally reminds uh, Diane that she had once seen one of the tulpas in a blue Camaro. Now, she says, next, incredibly, we saw the car start to drive over the pedestrian bridge in our direction. Now, they've already gone over the bridge. And this is a pedestrian bridge. Clearly big enough to support a car, though. No. No? It's not wide enough for a car. You know a pedestrian bridge, it's like yeah. two yeah, it's like, people well, yeah, wide. Yeah, exactly. It's like 1.2 yeah, metres or something, like you, three feet. You might be able to fit a motorcycle on it, barely. But she said it just didn't make sense. There's, there's no way it was wide enough for a car. And yet somehow they both watched as this Camaro started to drive over the footbridge. Did it shrink? But did the bridge get bigger? Did, did the, the car change? shrink? I, I don't, I don't real, I don't understand what happened. And she said... At that point, I realized we had entered the twilight zone. Logic told me that we had obviously left reality, so this illusion, or whatever it was, couldn't hurt me. And she said this this blue Camaro is heading towards her, and by the time it reaches her, because Sally's already fled by this stage, Sally's just Terrified. left her standing there because she knows what the blue Camaro means. Mm. It approaches her, and she's like, oh, my God, it's going to hit me, but it's only going three miles an hour. <laughs> So it's a slight bump. Super slow motion. I, I'm just like picturing it as a tiny clown car Camaro coming over the footbridge at this point. And um, she's just standing there and she quickly runs behind these two poles, which are meant the to pollards. be like lamps for the oh, new okay. park. Yeah. And as she turns around, the Camaro's utterly disappeared. It's completely gone. But they both saw it. Yeah, they so both it saw can't it. be a delusion. No, they both saw it. She caught up with Sally, who was waiting for her in the next block, and 
she's just wondering, did did she call the driver's bluff? Did did it just run out of energy again? Is that why it just disappeared? But why even bother doing it in the first place? She said, we were both sure that there was only one man in the car, but neither of us had seen him in detail for some reason. She said, my impression was that he was fairly young, maybe 30, thin and had dark hair, but I can't be 100% certain. They went back that afternoon to the park to see if there were any tyre tracks, but they found none. There was no evidence that a car had been there at all. And again, she says, I don't remember seeing the car disappear, but I might have lost 10 minutes of time. Oh. Because by the time she caught up with Sally, Sally was like, where, you know, where have you been? And it had been longer than she'd perceived. What could they possibly do in 10 minutes, though? She says, was this odd experience with one of Sally's tulpas or was it a strange experience not connected to them? And she says, when I say Sally's tulpas, I do question if she was the creator of them, even inadvertently. My opinion is a strong no. They both felt that, obviously, it was a connection to the UFO sighting they had in Tampa. And uh, she's wondering if it's another case of the the paranormal hitchhikers. And she references that um, that latest book on skinwalkers in the Pentagon. Oh, yes. By Colm Kelleher. Yeah. Uh, where they talk about the hitchhiker phenomenon, where people that were investigating the Skinwalker Ranch were finding that it would bringing things home. latch on to their family members or the, the guy that was investigating it latched on to the, the person that was working in the booth next to him yeah. at their office. Um, so they're thinking it's something like that. There's something about this hitchhiker phenomenon, but did they just lose energy? But there had to be some type of trigger effect. I mean, the fact that this all started when they were talking about UFOs and Star Trek... And then they have this experience. I feel like it may be in some way that that was like a precursor for maybe it is some type of topic-like event. They were talking about UFOs and then all of a sudden they see one and then maybe Sally got drawn into it and maybe she's psychically strong without realising it and it did generate all these weird experiences. Maybe it's like an externalised psychosis. Yeah, and it's like Alexandra David Neal's discussed with the tulpa. Yeah. gets strong enough, it has its own agency and it gets out of your control. Yeah. And thus it, that it was trying to... They were trying to kidnap her. Well, the fact that she ran away as well in the last scenario and it disappeared, like, does she have to be in the vicinity of it? Yeah, that's an interesting point. To power it? Uh, so I was skipping ahead to see what else was in this. There's an interesting little story with the techno-paranormal, she calls it, and this occurred in May of 1979. She had this small uh, house. It was one block from Tampa Bay. She shared it with her parents and her daughter. And this house was full of paranormal activity, she said. But it wasn't shadowy figures. It wasn't eerie noises, slamming doors. There was no ghosts or cryptids or aliens. Then what was it? Uh, the entire house had the beeps. The beeps? The beeps. So what, the fridge would start beeping in the middle of the night? So the television, it started with the television. The television would just go beep about five minutes before the hour, every hour, 24 hours a day. Well, is that technically paranormal, though, or is it just a setting in your TV? Well, at, yeah. At, no, this is in the 1970s, so it's like a oh. cathode ray, oh. old-school TV with knobs on it. Like, it's an old-school TV, but it had this electronic-sounding beep before every hour, five minutes before every hour, like clockwork. And she thought, oh, it must be, it's picking up a signal from a weather station, yeah. or, you know, there's an Air Force base down the road, it's picking up a yeah. signal from there, it's so annoying. Like, they just hated it, it was really annoying. It's maybe, yeah, it's maybe it's a constant radio signal or something. But then the beeps stopped coming from the TV, and they started coming from her daughter's clock radio. And all the same of, beeps, the same sound? Same sound, like this beep, and then 
it it just it stopped having a timing sequence to it, like it stopped being regular. They started to become random. She said she tried to detect a timing pattern but couldn't find one. But the weird thing about the clock radio is that it was beeping when the clock radio was turned off, which wouldn't happen with the TV. It would only the TV would only beep when it was on. So they started calling it the beeps. They started saying, "Oh, you know, the, the clock's got the beeps now," and this this beep would sometimes be a beep. But sometimes it would be like a beep, <laughs> just go for ages, like four seconds before it would turn off. And it always seemed determined to be heard, she said. They were clearly technical sounds, like it was clearly an artificial sound. And they didn't have any personal computers in the house. They didn't have anything else that would really beep apart from the TV or the radio. Remember, this is 1979. There's not really any gadgets. And... The beeps eventually moved out of the clock radio and into their lamps. Okay, so lamps don't beep. So they had two lamps in the living room. <laughs> the lamps like beep, 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 beep. And then you'd get close to it and it would just stop. Was there timing to those? No. It's still, again, just totally random. Like it would go off in the middle of the night, go off in the middle of the day. Where would it come from though? Because there's no speaker on it. There's no speaker. It didn't make sense. This is and, very and all style. of a sudden, the beep has left the clock radio and it's left the TV. It's like it's something Moving. moved to the lamps. So the lamps stopped beeping. And now her washing machine is beeping, like an old school washing machine. Beep. Middle of the night. Beep, beep, beep. It uh, must be irritating and sort of scary. Then her hairdryer starts beeping at her. And again, no speaker, nothing at all. She says the objects did not beep all at once. Like one object would beep, say the toaster would beep. And then the next day her hairdryer would start beeping. And the, she said the craziest one of all was a blank wall started beeping. Oh, come on. <laughs> this wall of the house. That beep, beep, beep. Uh, is someone playing a prank on her? Is this some weird experiment? Well, you know, her parents had no idea what was going on. They were hearing it as well. She said, we we knew the neighbours, like we weren't friends with them or anything, but we just couldn't see any way that anyone could bug random items in our house and set them to beep. And why? It just, it didn't make sense. Did she indicate that other people in the house were hearing it? It's not just her. Yeah, her parents were hearing it. Her daughter was hearing it. Um, she managed to record the beeps on a tape recorder, but it was weird. Sometimes the beeps would show up fine on the recording, but other times clearly there was a beep that was recorded, but when you played it back, there was nothing there. Mm. Or the beep would sound different on playback. Um, what could it possibly be trying to achieve, though? Like, is it just to annoy her? So, okay, so this links to Mothman in a way. And she explains this saying, it's May the 9th, 1980, 7.33am, and she's hurriedly getting herself and her daughter ready for school and her smoke alarm started beeping. Well, that's normal. And yeah, that's totally normal, but it wasn't the beep the that a smoke beep. alarm makes. It was a really urgent, like a really urgent static, beep, 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 like just going crazy. And she knows what the smoke alarm sounds like. It's gone off, you know, a bunch of times. And she thought, that's weird. It's not the battery low signals, a fresh battery in there. It's just going crazy. Beep, 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 beep. And she, she said it actually, sorry, it sounded like Morse code. So it's like beep, mm. beep, 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 beep. And she doesn't know Morse code. No one in the house knew Morse code, but it sounded like a message. A few moments later, while the smoke alarm is still beeping this Morse code, 
their their television is on and they hear the breaking news that a barge has just rammed into the Skyway Bridge at approximately 7.35 a.m. And it's this huge disaster because a a Greyhound bus and several cars plunge off the bridge um, where the barge hit it and over 35 people died that day. And as soon as this message had played on the news, the smoke alarm stopped beeping. And this was like a year anniversary from when the beeps actually started. So she's wondering if it was like some kind of premonition of this horrible disaster that was about to occur. Even if it was, what benefit does it have for her? What What could she have done about it? Well, she's only a few miles from this bridge of where the disaster happened. It's quite close to her house. But annoying someone with beeps for a year is not, oh, there's a barge about to smash into a bridge and you need to do something about but it. But maybe the beeps coming from the hairdryer were in Morse code, but it was just so annoying they never paid attention. That's maybe it's some some maybe it's someone who knows they've died in the future and has travelled back in time to warn her I like that one. beeps in the hairdryer. That one I think is more plausible. <laughs> so she also says... Um, after this accident, this big disaster, they heard a few beeps around the house, but they had less energy. And then finally, by June of 1980, the beeps had stopped forever. Um, but then she linked this to Mothman by saying she was outdoors by herself in the summer of 1979, during the summer that they had all these beeps. This is before the bridge disaster. And she was out looking at the stars and she said, suddenly something blotted out the stars. Like it was very large clearly opaque, dark, lined in blood red. And she said it was completely silent except for a whoosh that went over her head. And it gave her the impression that something with a giant wings, wingspan had flown over her. Yeah, that is odd. Or something with like a spread out cape or something just flapped over her. She said it was moving way faster than a bird could have flown. And uh, it was too big for a bird as well. And then once it was gone, the stars reemerged. Now... She suddenly remembered that thing that zoomed over her head when that bridge had collapsed and it made her think of the um, Silver Bridge collapse yeah. of 1967 in, uh, in, what was that, in West, Point Pleasant, West Virginia with the whole Mothman thing. I can't help but feel with this kind of stuff, though, that there are warnings that are given to people, but it always seems to fall on deaf ears and I don't know if that's by design. Look, if I had beeps in my house coming from around, it would drive me insane. Well, of course it would, but it, you wouldn't associate it with the coming disaster. You'd no, just be trying I, to work out what's I going on. I would be smashing everything every day. <laughs> I wouldn't rest until the beeps had, had stopped. You know, nothing annoys me more than those people that don't change the batteries on their smoke alarms and they just let them beep forever. I hardwired mine because I can't stand it. Dude, at, our, at the gym in Noosa, they left the fucking f- smoke alarm beeping. For, I swear, like four weeks. You should have thrown a dumbbell at it. Just every day you'd be working out, beep. Oh, yep. Beep. Yep. You know, that really yeah. loud smoke yeah, yeah, beep. Yeah. And it, when the battery's dead, it goes off like every three minutes or something. And I'm just like, seriously, no one's changed this battery? Is it too high? Is and I spoke problem? I spoke to the girl that works there. She's like, oh, you know, the, the boss is going to do it. He said he'd do it like two weeks later. No one's changed the freaking smoke alarm battery. Drives me nuts. Everyone else is working out like this is just totally normal. It's not maybe that, normal. Maybe that's what was happening to you. Maybe no one else could hear it. It was like a warning for you, Beth. There's going to be a terrible disaster in Noosa and I you just, can't do anything about I it. I don't understand it. In, in an apartment, I used to live in that apartment in Lane Cove and your neighbours, like your neighbours, you can hear their freaking smoke alarm beeping. Yeah. And you know that they're home and they just How leave it. There? They leave it beeping for days. 
days and days and days not changing the battery. It's mind-blowing. On a bright note, I know that now how to piss you off if I really need to. I don't understand it. It drives me nuts. Like the amount of times I knocked on neighbours' doors and said, do you need any help changing the battery? Oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> okay. Then can you do something about it? My God. Anyway. <laughs> Let's talk about Montserrat and its Gaelic energy by Antoine Albarola. Yes, please. So this is a mountain near Barcelona in Spain, uh, long regarded as a sacred and magical place. Oh, Montserrat is is attached to some really unusual activity. There's legends going back there for hundreds of years. Yeah. Yeah, in 1880, there's a legend that um, there were all these lights seen on the mountain mm-hmm. for six weeks in a row, and it was witnessed by the bishop and you know, all the local people, and the light was apparently coming down out of the sky and falling on a location on the mountain. And when they investigated where it was falling, it was a previously undiscovered cave. And inside the cave, they found this beautiful intact statue of the Virgin Mary that supposedly was made in 50 AD. And has that been put in a museum or a a religious, like a church somewhere? I don't think it's the original one, but Mm -hmm. there is one there that's... It's like a black Virgin Mary. It's in the cave where the original was supposedly found, but yeah, it's but like a black Madonna figure. It's like those stories in uh, Japan. It's like um, just outside of Nagano with the um, that golden border. It's that old story that the border just came up out of the sea. And so apparently it's there, but no one can see it. Yeah. Like it's all put behind doors. And there's a beautiful uh, basilica there. There's mm. a beautiful uh, village and uh, there's all this... Uh, hermit's grottos kind of stuck into the mountain, built out of the mountain. It's really beautiful. For meditating? Yeah, they would seal themselves seal themselves off from society and devote their lives to, to prayer. Uh, but there's an interesting forward by a Swedish Templar, a modern-day Templar. His name's Tobias Tornel. And he said, when I saw the mountain of Montserrat, I felt humbled. It was like looking at an old dragon sleeping in the landscape. But he said, when we entered the basilica, I was amazed looking at everything around me, and suddenly I saw a message on the wall. So he sees in writing, neon writing, here is the grail, clearly painted on the wall in front of him. He immediately tries to call over his other Templar brother, Tomas, uh, to show him this amazing thing that's appeared on the wall. But when his friend arrives, it's vanished, completely gone. Something had happened, he said, and only I had seen it. He said, I assure you that I saw it and I felt an immense feeling of being blessed by this wisdom. Moments later, he said, I'm sure that the large canvas representing St. Benedict presiding over one of the rooms before reaching the Virgin's dressing room looked at me and smiled. Okay. That's pretty cool. After all this and paying our respects to the Black Madonna, which was an incredible moment, he said, I, he fills a bottle from the mystical source of water of life and um, he says, I've kept it ever since on my altar in Sweden. But he said, don't ask me why, but I felt the urgent need to come and visit this mountain. And when I arrived, I can assure you that I felt there was something very sacred in that mountain. Miracles are real for those who are ready to see them. So according to his experience, the Holy Grail is there in the mountain somewhere. So Antoine writes about uh, how special the place is, how there's a kind of magnetism that makes people feel different. They feel attracted to the mountain. There's there's some spiritual energy there. But he starts talking about the dizziness people have. Mm. Like people report yeah. feeling a strange sense of disorientation sometimes when, the, when they're on the mountain. It gives people a strange attraction, he says, that makes you want to enter it, to walk more towards its interior. 
uh, and it has a big spiritual impact on the human being. Yeah, is there a euphoria that's associated with it? Well, he says the truth is that Montserrat is a mountain in which disturbing energetic manifestations take place. And he says, for me, Montserrat, on an unconscious level, symbolizes the place where many people hope to find the holy grail within. Okay. Okay. It's a I'm little not, bit secrety. I'm not interested in within, though. What I is, don't want to go somewhere and find the holy grail within. But what is the holy I grail? I want to is find to the holy grail. Is it a cup? <laughs> yeah, it's or? the cup that Jesus used at the, the, the Last Supper, and it's got magical power. Like, I want the cup that has magical powers. I don't want the cup that's within. <laughs> it has always been inside you, Ben. I don't, yeah. It's like, no, it's not. The truth is just inside your heart. <laughs> no, it's not. Like, if I'm going to impress Himmler and the SS, <laughs> I can't come back and say... Oh, well, I, the spear of destiny is just in your heart. It's all within you. You'll get, you'll get a get luger ex- to the skull. You'll get executed immediately. Like, you've got to f- find the actual Holy Grail. So he claims there's old records that discuss that the mountain is hollow, that it's El Shasto. Um, <laughs> he doesn't quote them or reference them or tell any stories about them. He, cr- he claims there's an underground lake uh, inside the mountain. Again, no reference, no stories, nothing. Uh, he says there's an incredible cave system in there, and he does offer something with this. He says they have a length of 549 meters going into the mountain, uh, and there's incredible, you know, nitric salt caves and stalactites and stalactites everywhere. And there's a bunch of caves that have been given rooms or names for rooms. So there's the Devil's Well, the Cave of Columns, the the Elephant Cave, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This stuff publicly accessible? Yeah, so you can go on. Uh, guided tours okay. of these caves. And he did this with a bunch of tour guides. And he said that they were all very professional, um, you know, giving scientific explanations for everything and accurate history went on the actual tour. Sure. But he said after the, the tour of the caves, he invited them out for dinner. And they went out for a drink. And he said what they told me was nothing to do with the program I just experienced. He said everything they talked about was like a halo of mystery. He said they told me that what we see in the cave is a small part, but that they had been told that there are kilometres to travel inside and that this cavity surely reached the monastery on the other side of the mountain. So the monastery has secret access to these rooms? Yeah, so there's this suggestion, at least they're hinting at, some kind of secret cave system that not everyone has access to. So is it also hinting that someone in the monastery knows about this? Yeah. And uh, he's saying that today you can't investigate this because it's all walled up. Like Mm. All these caves are walled up, most of them, except the official tourist ones. And he said at the end of this session of drinks with these guys, he said they only told me that they could not say more but that I should deepen my investigation because I would be pleasantly surprised by the search. So again, I'm hoping that he, you know, cracks the bolt on the yeah. <laughs> on the cage and gets into the cave and goes down there and finds something amazing. No, no, nothing like that. It's it's like he went on a holiday and took some happy snaps and then and speculated about just how incredible it could be. This, but then, yeah, this is just his notes. Um, and he tells the story of the lights on the mountain and how. That led to the discovery of the statue. He's, he's got a photo of the statue, and I'll, I'll see if I can put this in the show notes for you. Um, again, I'm not sure if this is the original one, 
Uh, it's all it's all very underwhelming, to well, tell you the truth. I was looking for El Shasto mind explosions. I didn't get it. I know what you wanted. You wanted a uh, central technology room with three different gateways to yeah. other locations around the globe. Is that too much to ask? I know. I, it, it is sometimes. But, I mean, yeah, it, oh, I'm looking at the photograph of the, the statue now. And it's pretty it's, cool. Okay, so It's cool, he, but it's he not says that He says that these telluric intersections are all across Europe. Like, it's stuff you've been talking about on the show recently. Sure, and yeah. everywhere that these telluric currents cross, <coughs> there have been discoveries of a black Virgin Mary shrine. What? Yeah. So are these Virgin Marys, these particular statues, are they more like accumulators, well, generators? He says they're not discovered in random places. Capacitors. They stand on the ruins of pagan temples, which were themselves built on prehistoric megalithic worship sites. In all of Europe, he says, there's already more than 450 of these black virgins. All of them have similarities and parallels between them. Most of them are made in the 11th and 12th centuries. And he says the face of the virgin, the virgin, sorry, shows oriental features. And in all her stories or legends, it is said that they were brought from the East by a monk or a Templar. So do they have Oriental features? I don't think they have Oriental features. Uh, let me look a little bit closer. Does that look like a Chinese Virgin Mary to you? Oh, yeah, it's kind of got... Does it? Yeah, a little bit. It, does kinda, it actually it does kind of look like a Chinese Virgin Mary. It looks a little bit Buddha-esque. Yeah. And the like stories the, the say statues. they've been brought from the East by a monk or a Templar? Are the Templars getting Buddha statues and then, like, recarving them to look, like, a little bit more Western? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and then I have to tell you that, again, he gives, like, this enticing of maybe there's a story there, but he never tells a story. Uh, and then you've got the one story, which is the legend of Fra Joan Gari. So this goes back to the year 859, and there's this anchorite named Fra Joan Gari who lived on Montserrat and was one of these uh, hermits. He renounced the world. Uh, he wanted to live away from worldly temptations and live a life of prayer and meditation. So he ate only herbs and fruits of the land and drank water from the nearby spring. And this there's this cave of his that's located uh, above the road that leads to one of the main hermitages. So you can go there and see it today, this cave where he spent his years. Yeah. Uh, and he was so devoted to the Virgin that his virtue was the admiration of the the entire country. And he started to become famous. You know, he's this famous hermit. And people from all the towns near the mountain and um, word started to spread of how pious he was. And according to the legend, word spread so far that eventually it reached the the ears of the lords of hell. And a demon was sent to tempt Fragari, disguised as another hermit. So this demon, looking like a, another mountain man, pretended to meet him on one of these mountain paths and said, oh, funny meeting you here. I am also a pious hermit of the mountain. Strange that we've never met, this demon said. And... Uh, he tried to tempt him. He basically said, oh, a holy man like you who is so pious should be at the top of the church and enjoy all the authority and privileges he deserves. It's crazy that you live in such poor, uh, such a poor cave. Um, They're trying to tempt him. Yeah, trying to kindle his desire. Apparently, this didn't work on Fragari. Um, he gave Fragari a vision of the rocks being made of gold for some reason as well. This 
it just it just didn't tempt him. He was um, he was onto it. Basically immune to greed at this stage. He'd removed the attachment completely. So the uh, lords of hell realized they were dealing with someone that would be quite difficult. So they had to change strategy. So they sent another one of their princes of hell. And it, it took the form of a, a very, very handsome young man. His name was Leonardo. And uh, with his entourage of demons, who basically looked like uh, other handsome men and women, they headed for the city of Barcelona. And immediately he went to the palace of the count. And uh, he made his way into court. He kind of, you know, seduced his way into the court until eventually he caught the eye of the Count's daughter, Princess Rakilda. And because this demon was disguised as a handsome prince, uh, he immediately seduced this girl. Like he, she, she her panties dropped instantly, right? <laughs> and Rakilda allowed... The demonic panties dropped. She allowed herself to be embraced by Leonardo. Uh, and as soon as they embraced, according to the story, he took possession of her soul, like his form vanished kicked, and possessed her kicked her soul out of her body and shunk, he was he was the princess like he was now driving the princess now the count senses that something's wrong because obviously the princess isn't acting her usual yep. self uh she's acting very very strange like her head spinning around and vomits coming out <laughs> and they try <laughs> That's and definitely normal they try and um exercise her and they try everything they can but nothing manages to free this young woman from the grasp of this demon until finally the demon speaks through Rakilda. And the demon simply says, Gari, Gari, take me to Gari. So the Count's like, all right, do what the demon says. We've got to find this guy, Gari. And so because he's the famous hermit, someone says, I, I know this is this famous hermit named Gari. He lives on Mount Surat. So they obviously, they take her. They follow the demon's instructions. They... Uh, find themselves before Gurry's cave and the Count explains to the hermit what's happened. He's like, my daughter's possessed. The demon demanded to see you. You've got to help us. You've got to help us. And Gurry, he just starts praying. He starts praying for this young woman uh, night and day. And I think it's after like two or three days, eventually she's released from her possession and Fra Gurry has saved the day. Now, the Count, though, He's afraid to take his daughter back to Barcelona immediately. Why? Because he thinks she still could be possessed? Yeah, or? he's he's worried that she might be possessed again, that another demon might seduce her. So he says to Fragari, he says, please, please, take care of my young daughter for a few days in your cave and I'll return and, you know, speak to her of the Lord, um, show her the ways of God. You know, basically... And get her some iron panties. De-whore my daughter. Uh, and that's... <laughs> that I washed right off. Now, <laughs> Fragari, he reluctantly accepts because, you know, he's trying to remove himself from society. He's trying to avoid temptations. And now this beautiful young princess is meant to just stay alone with him in his cave for two days. But he can't refuse the count. It's like refusing the king. You can't do it. So... No one truly knows what happened after this. But the fact is that Gurry wasn't he lose so his way. <laughs> he wasn't so pious after mm. all. Gurry uh certainly sinned in a in a major way from multiple directions. 
several times <laughs> in one night. He was sinning all over her. Um, obviously, yeah, he had given in to his temptations, um, and he was so he was so destroyed by guilt that he actually um, killed her. Oh. Yeah, it's not... Mate, if you're destroyed by guilt, kill yourself, not someone else. Um, it's not quite said how that happened. It just said his mind was plagued with desires. It was so difficult to resist. Talk about um, dropping off your perch, though. That he finally ended her life. May- maybe like, it's some... Um, maybe there's some, I don't know, like, um, moralistic idea in there that, you know, you can't see, but, like, releasing her from her sin. I don't know. It's something a bit, like that. I mean, he went from, like, a really pious guy to just... He can't have been that good, though, if it just takes him one night of I'd, hanging out with the Count's yeah, daughter. That's a good point. And she wasn't even that attractive. There you go. She was like a seven. <laughs> so he, she was basically dead at her feet, and then he heard laughter echo in the cave, like once she had... once he'd killed her. So the, the demon's plan, the kings of hell, their plan, that was their plan all along. To lead him away from the righteous path. Well, to get her to spend some nights in his cave. So he ended up burying her body in a hidden place on the mountain. And in an instant, he had become the worst criminal. He, he knew that he was destined for hell. He thought his only chance was to somehow get to Rome and beg the Pope for forgiveness. Because he would have been executed, I assume. Yeah, well, as soon as the Count came back, yeah. he was done. Yeah. So he does this, he, he makes, puts on a disguise and does this huge trip to Rome, which would have taken, you know, weeks or months to get to Rome. And uh, he basically gets on his knees in front of the Pope. Somehow he gets an audience with the Pope because he's famous. And um, he confesses to the Pope and the Pope says, look, you've, you've committed such a great sin that you don't deserve to be considered a man. Therefore, from now on, you will always live more like a beast at ground level, eating only the things that you will find on the ground. You will not speak to anyone and you will not stand up again or raise your eyes to heaven since you are not worthy to look at it. Now, he eventually returned to Montserrat, but no one saw him ever again. So is there some legend of some man-beast thing hanging around up there? Well, years later... There were some uh, hunters who were, you know, hunting for the Count. And they saw a beast of which they had never seen before. There was something drinking at the river. And let me send you a, a description or an old sketch of this beast and tell me who it reminds you of. Oh, it, it kind of looks like Pan. Oh. And, and Sasquatch. It's yeah. a big, hairy, green Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> it does look like Pan. No, it looks like those... Pan's got hooves. Well, without the hooves, though. Pan's got a goat's goat's legs. That's a Sasquatch. But with the face, with the, the beard, and yeah, it's a Sasquatch, but it's a green Sasquatch. It's a green Sasquatch, yeah. And they said, we'd never seen an animal like this. Let's take him to the Count. And they said, you know, his entire body was covered in hair and everything about him was had changed. He's completely unrecognisable. And he didn't resist the hunters. And they he was basically completely docile. They took him to the Count. So he arrives in Barcelona at the Count's palace and he was inside a cage. It's like they turned up with King Kong. And coincidentally, the Countess had given birth to a child. So the Count was having a big celebration. Prince Miro uh, had just been born. He's like three weeks old or something. And he was having his baptism, and they were all uh, marveling at this incredible event. And 
they bring in the the hunters. They bring in this beast as kind of kind of a jester thing in the middle of the celebrations. And he's got a leash tied around his neck. And there's another uh, famous painting of this. Let me send it to you for the show notes, where they're just parading him around. Oh wow! I mean. He obviously looks miserable. It feels like it has this um, kind of like an Aesop's fable feel to it. But see the the Countess holding the baby there? Yeah. So as he's being paraded around like a good Sasquatch, that baby, who's like weeks old, looks down at the hairy Bigfoot Gary and says, Get up, Gary. God has already forgiven you in it. How can a baby that's a few weeks old (laughs) say that? (laughs) <laughs> is the baby possessed by a demon as well? That's what the baby says, clear as day, and the entire court is, because <gasps> the baby has just spoken and said, Gari has been forgiven by God. Everyone freezes. And the Count comes up to this hairy man beast and says, is that really you, Fraggery? Where the hell's my daughter? Oh. What the hell did you do with my daughter? Oh, wow. Where is she? Now, Gari tells him the sad story and offers his chest to the Count's dagger. He's like, kill me, I deserve to be killed. I've sinned greatly. But the Count stops at the last moment and says, I cannot punish the one whom the Most High has just forgiven. Because I will, yeah, because he's forgiven by God. Because the baby clearly said he's been forgiven by God. So or the Count begged the hairy Sasquatch man to take him to the place where his dead daughter was because... He wanted to give her a proper proper burial yeah. in in Barcelona. So hairy fraggery. He's still a hairy. Yeah, he's still he's a Sasquatch. He he takes the the count and his entourage to the remains of where she was buried, and they slowly start to remove the earth and dig her up. And they do it carefully because they don't want to damage her body. They want to keep her in a pristine state. And eventually, they uncover her, and she looks perfect. Like she looks completely undisturbed. Like an incorruptible. Unspoiled. She hasn't decayed at all. She's incredibly beautiful. And the father comes over, the count comes over, he's got tears in his eyes and he picks her up and hugs her and she comes back to life. And there's this incredible mil- the miracle and the baby is like, see, I told you. <laughs> all the men fall to their knees and Rakilda proclaims her desire to retire to a religious life on the mountain and... um. Harry Joan Gray suddenly transforms, like Shrek, he transforms into the handsome hermit once again before their very eyes. I would have thought and the handsome the hermit. End of the story. What a shit story. <laughs> you don't kill the Sorry, count's daughter, be a hairy man in the forest for a couple of years, and then, oh, everything's fine. Well, obviously, it's, it's a moral fable of some kind. Is it? it, it What's must the be, moral? Well, the moral is like, don't be misled. Be Rape careful. and murder is okay because no, you'll not. just get forgiven by the Pope. <laughs> is that the message? Yeah, as long as you walk through the wilderness for two weeks to get to Rome, the Pope will let you be a Bigfoot. So you can commit pretty much any sin you want and you get to be a Bigfoot for a couple of years. I would be a Bigfoot for free for a couple of years. Isn't, what an experience. Isn't that kind of what religion is anyway? <laughs> get forgiveness turned into a Bigfoot? <laughs> so if you rosaries and you're good. Hmm. No, no. I think I think that's obviously it must be a, an older legend that must have had some you know moral teachings in it, but <laughs> obviously it doesn't translate very well to today. I wonder if it's been mixed in with actual Bigfoot sightings on the mountain. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Like if there's wild man legends from the region, did it get shuffled into that story? I want to know what's behind these walled up rooms now. 
Yeah, on Montserrat. Yeah. In the caves. Well, the Nazis were looking. In Montserrat? Yeah. they Himmler went down there in... When was it? It was just before the war, wasn't it? 39, I oh, think he made a trip there. It was during the war. Yeah, well, yeah, 1939. Yeah, it was all because of Otto Rahn. Remember Otto Rahn? Yes. Um, who started to investigate all this stuff. He was looking for the Holy Grail for years. He was eventually recruited into the SS because of the books he wrote about the Holy Grail and the idea of um, Jesus descending from Aryan stock and all, yeah. that, all that crazy stuff. Um, Himmler basically loved this idea and brought Otto Rahn into the SS and basically gave him unlimited funding to find, to find the Holy these Grail. Artifacts. Yeah. And it wasn't just the Holy Grail, though. It was also the Spear of Longinus? I don't, or I don't know if what was Otto it? Rahn was looking for the Spear. No, but what was Himmler looking for? And they, they were looking for occult objects. There was a multitude of them. The reason I don't want to go into, into it in great detail is because it's a whole episode. Okay. And I've yeah, got right. some links to go into Otto Rahn and... It, there is some. Oh, the spear of destiny. You mentioned it before. That's yeah, there is yeah. some. There is some wild stuff of how he got started, where his ideas came from, where it led him. Um, which I just don't have time for on this episode because it's like a double header. Yeah, it would be huge of an episode. But long story short, Himmler was there at Montserrat on October the twenty third, nineteen forty, and he, the abbot, uh, sent a German speaking monk to to greet the, the the Nazi SS officers and they were convinced that there would be documents in the Montserrat Basilica Library that would, that them what? would reveal at least some kind of connection to the Grail. And Himmler was reportedly annoyed because they were giving him tours of the Basilica and the Grotto and... He didn't care about any of that. He, he kept on saying, all I want to see is the wilderness and I want to see the library and I want to see the wilderness. And they just they kind of refused to help him. Well, they probably knew. Uh, there was eventually a complaint from uh, Franco. Was it Franco? The dictator of Spain? I can't remember now. But he was annoyed because the Nazis were treated poorly by the monks at Montserrat. Yeah, but and they probably knew that they were evil and had they actually gained access to these magical items, they could have changed the world. Yeah, so there's a there's a whole other story to go into there as to whether the monks knew something and they weren't letting on. So they're on. Nazi fighting monks. And he, that's the, the impression Himmler came away with, that they weren't telling him the, the full story. And when he got back to his hotel in Barcelona, it's reported that he found his wallet was stolen. <laughs> 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 and... Yeah, they, they never recovered his wallet, and there's a the story probably that, used it in a ritual. Well, there's a story that British Secret Service stole it, um, and that it did actually have some Grail documents. He had Grail documents oh. in his wallet, but we ne- we'll never know the story because his wallet's never been recovered. But what I wanted to quickly mention was all the missing four one one cases on this yeah. this mountain. So one of the first cases is from 1973. Uh, a body of a young man was found in an incredibly inaccessible point on the mountain. Uh, he was in an advanced state of decomposition. There was a suicide note in his pocket, though, in his own handwriting, which said he was ready to meet the supreme being on the mountain. Oh. Which is an odd suicide note. Like, I can understand if he said, I'm ready to meet my maker, and he's committed suicide, but he yeah, but specifically the said the supreme being on the mountain. This is like what I was telling you only recently about people that are drawn to certain locations in Sedona. And they're being told, oh, just a little bit closer. Just walk up a little bit closer. Keep your eyes closed. And they're getting to an edge. Yeah. The author says the case is attributed to excessive hobby of ufology. And remember, this book is translated from Spanish. Yeah. So an excessive so an hobby of ufology. ufology. <laughs> uh, another of these events occurred on the night of San Juan in 1975. 
A local man named Pep disappeared when he was returning from putting out a forest fire in Can Rogent, a flat area with no difficulties for walkers, no way you could really get lost there. For several days, the civil guard, together with the sniffer dogs, tried to find the man. He was never heard from again. In 1980, an 18-year-old girl named Gloria disappeared uh, on the mountain. She was found shortly after her disappearance by rescue services. She had entered the mountain and was somehow totally disoriented. No idea where she was, no idea how she'd gotten there, could barely remember her name. She had clear symptoms of dehydration, profound confusion. Now get this, she's treated in the ambulance on the way to a, a hospital in a nearby city. And the, the ambulance stops somewhere. She jumps out of the ambulance and escapes and re-enters the mountain like oh, wilderness. she's so really crazy. Runs into the mountain wilderness. She's never seen from again. They lost her. Uh, in 1985... So they didn't find the body? No, no idea where she went. She's completely gone. In 1985, a woman named Amparo uh, Puish disappeared under strange circumstances. Days before, she had told a friend that when she went hiking to Montserrat, she had suffered dizziness in the areas of the mountain where there were cracks and fissures, and that sometimes she felt attracted and was invited to go irresistibly towards the unknown subterranean kingdom of the mountain. Where are they getting these ideas, though? Does it appear in their head because they're in the vicinity? Is something beaming it into their heads, or do they know Uh, of it? There's hardly anything you can find in books on Montserrat that isn't about Nazis or religious stuff. So I wonder if there's all this like material... Well, if there's material in Spanish about UFOs and yeah. underground, like it really is El Shasto. Yeah, because Mount Shasta does attract uh, a large number of people that are trying to have an experience. Yeah, maybe there's that... I There's all those ideas surrounding it, but they're just not translated into English. I, I did hear you yell out from your office today that it's all in Spanish. It's either in freaking Spanish or Portuguese. I found five <laughs> great books... Searching for them endlessly, they're all in Spanish. No one speaks Spanish. <laughs> Except for people from Spain. <laughs> it's just, it's, hardly anyone America. speaks that language. Right, okay. And the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking, because obviously everyone speaks Spanish. Except for me. So, um... Oh no, count me in. Anyway, this woman, uh, Amparo Puig, Puig, uh, she was having, you know, she told a friend she was having all these... She was allured to these certain places on the mountain... Was she uh, seeing things or just had a, a compulsion? It, it's not mentioned, but mm. after some time, they found her car in a public parking lot uh, on one of the tourist areas of the mountain. No trace of her anywhere. Keys are still in the ignition. All her stuff's in the car. Phone's in the car. She left all her supplies in the car. She's just gone. Yeah. It's a really weird detail that just keeps popping up that they would leave all their stuff behind. And then in 1990, you've got Carlos uh, Tixador, Again, this was a ufology guy, very big into UFOs. He ran away from his house towards Montserrat. The emergency services and the family finally found him. They returned him safe and sound. The next day, December the 16th, he heads to the mountainside again. What do you mean ran away? Did you suddenly lose it and went running towards the mountain? Mom, I'm running away. Like his dad wouldn't let him play Xbox. (laughs) So he ran away. I don't know. Doesn't give any details. But the next day, he heads back into the mountain Never seen again. It's like some type of paranormal Venus flytrap, isn't it? It is a bit like... I reckon there's something to it. Actually, no, they did find that guy. His body was found at the uh, end of a ravine three weeks later. Okay, so is there like a missing 411 element there and that maybe they searched and didn't find the body? Does it mention something like that? I mean, they did search and not find the body because obviously it's three weeks later, but I I don't know the details. 
there was a 38-year-old man on a solo excursion. He disappeared in August of 1998. The only news about him is that his car remained for weeks in the monastery parking lot until the police identified his body. There's a Raul Almagro disappeared on April the 8th, 2014. Uh, eight years have passed since his disappearance. No clues, no body, nothing. On May the 26th, 2021, the lifeless body of a 28-year-old boy from Manresa was found in a ravine in an area of very difficult access. He had last been seen on the uh, previous Friday, May the 21st. And the last case, he says, is that of uh, Julian Beltran, is this 22-year-old guy who on the morning of January the 7th, 2021, he was at a party in a nearby village. His friends say that he walked away from the party after telling them the sacred mountain of Montserrat was calling him. A friend said he had been saying he was the chosen one. Beltran told them that he wanted to go alone and went into the Montserrat mountainside. It was the last time his friends had contact with him. It was the last time anyone saw him. This is surreal. This is absolutely surreal. That afternoon at 3.25pm, his mobile phone emitted the last signal from him, whatever that means. I don't know what that means. It's a ping. It's probably just a tower ping. Right. Uh, Now, this guy lived in Barcelona, but he was a Colombian, and his whole family lived in Colombia. His mother flew to Barcelona after she heard the news to look for her son. He was only 22 years old, and obviously he's not answering his calls. They haven't found any clues to his whereabouts. No body's been found. Nothing. But my favourite case was from 1992 when the local fire department went to rescue a hiker who had gotten lost on the mountain. And again, the first thing they noticed is that he had left his car unlocked with the keys in it without any explanation of why he just walked off into the mountain. That in itself, though, is weird, isn't it? Like, why wouldn't you, put your, why wouldn't you lock your car? It's like an yeah. automatic thing that you do. So the, they, they couldn't find him. Um, They did several passes of the rescue helicopter, no sign of the guy. In the end, they they found a guy. And it was this hiker in this really hard-to-reach part of the mountain, and he's waving his arms at the helicopter, like, come and get me, come and get me. And they think, great, we've found him. So the helicopter uh, alerts the ground services. They give him the location. The ground services go and rescue him. And they find that it's not the guy they're looking for. It's another hiker who has also been missing, but no one knew yet. He's only been missing for three days and no one had really been looking for him. He tells them he's been lost for three days. He has no idea where he is. He's completely disoriented. They they say to him, where have you been sleeping? He says um, he's been sleeping in the cave with the black woman. Now, again, the guy is... um, You mean like the Madonna statue? Well, he's incredibly disoriented. Again, he's babbling, he's weak. Um, He just keeps repeating that he's been sleeping in the cave with the black woman. Now, the rescue team search the area. They find the cave and they find the black woman. Which is? It's the remains of an English tourist who went missing two years ago. Oh, my God. Did he realise that she was dead or was he that out of it? It's never explained. You presume from the way the story's told that he's just lost it and he thinks that he's been hanging out with this woman in a cave, like probably chatting, well, she sharing actually black, or Maybe her, her corpse has gone black from... No, she was a white white English woman, but her skin had yeah, from the over time. Yeah, decomposition. Um, and, you know, this, this was someone that had been missing for years and finally, obviously, her family could retrieve her body and bury her. 
But the first guy who had actually just left his car and left his keys in his car and vanished, he was never found. He's missing to this day. What do you think's going on here? Uh, I, I think it is, like you described, some kind of paranormal honey trap. Yeah, I, I was thinking, because this is what happens, it's abundantly clear with many of these stories, whatever these things are, they, they hunt human beings because they're so superior to us in so many ways. They're maybe not superior to us uh, morally, they may not be superior to us technologically, but you know they can disappear, they can remain elusive, they can um, you know, terrify people. They're only messing with humanity because they want something. Like it never turns out being positive. It's always negative. And maybe like these particular locations around the world, maybe that's why the US has so many missing 411 cases. Like there's certain locations that go beyond being window areas. They're like paranormal Venus flytraps. Or the other option, the other possibility could be that there's nothing paranormal about this at all. It's just some unknown energy that causes people to go crazy when they get close enough to it. Well, maybe there's something... Uh, electromagnetic yeah. uh, about the the rocks. It only really affects certain people with it, a certain you know brain structure. There, or, there is this rumor that there's an underwater, or oh, sorry, there's an in mountain lake. There's a there's some kind of deposit of water in there. And he mentions in the book that it's odd that there's sometimes you know roads are taken out by water coming from the inside the come. mountain, but they don't know what the source of the water is. It does indicate that there's a huge source of water from within the mountain. So from what we've read and researched on, you know, telluric currents mm, and mm-hmm. ley lines and electromagnetic energies throwing people off. And how water plays a role in that. Water plays a role in that. Is there something about that combination of the water and the mountain that's making people lose their sense of direction, making them go crazy. You know what would be really fascinating is if someone did a study and looked at the data for, um, you know, what times do people disappear? Does it happen around the same time of year? Does it happen with certain solar or uh, astronomical activity? You know, does it happen with, um, you know, certain events that are taking place in the weather patterns? Well, the reason it attracts a lot of UFO people is because there's tons of sightings of weird lights over the mountain. And that's part of that paranormal trap, I reckon. Because think about it, it's like it's a lure. And what do we have here in Australia? It's like with the Min Min lights, even though they look pretty, but you're always told to don't follow a Min Min light because it's going to lead you astray. Yeah. So if you've got these mountains, they've got these beautiful lights that are attracting people up there, it's and a lure. I guarantee you that mountain is covered in tulpas. Because people are thinking about it so much? Because you've got these effigies and statues and, you know, and the energy black, that's black there. Madonna statues. People are going there en masse, yep. thousands of tourists every month. And they're focusing all their thoughts and energy onto these statues. So there's and like Lamborghinis driving around the mountain. We know that when people, you know, put enough thought and energy into something, it forms it forms something in another dimension. So maybe the lights people are seeing isn't UFO activity; it's tulpas. Yeah, maybe it's what's being created from all the mental energy that's been applied at this place for hundreds of years, or has gotten loose as well. That's the other possibility. It's definitely gotten loose. Yeah, yeah. That's so crazy. the moral of the story is: don't go off into the wilderness. And leave your car unlocked. Someone might take your car. <laughs> I don't think that was the point That's of the story. The point. Like, so it's very dangerous to grand theft auto situations to leave your car unlocked. I think the moral to the story is don't get lured to certain places by yourself without any type of uh, water or you know survival app- appliances. That would be my moral. No, to the story. I think this is definitely a, a theft safety. Segment. Make sure your car doesn't get nicked. When you get lured into the wilderness by an evil demonic entity who's hypnotized your mind, make sure you, you're the one. Make sure you lock your car, take your keys <laughs> with you, take your phone. 
Yeah, at least take your phone so rescuers could find you. Take a gun. At least you could ping a tower and they could try yeah, and locate you. Take a satellite phone, a GPS. Just, satellite phone, even Just better. for once, I would like Good. to hear a missing 411 story. And they found the guy. And yes, he was killed by an evil paranormal force, but he was prepared. <laughs> like he had food, he had a satellite phone, he had a map and a compass. Wouldn't it be better that he actually gets out of it alive? Wouldn't that be the <laughs> well, better story? Well, that's a little bit. We're asking too much. Yeah, that's asking yeah. too much. All right, fair enough. That's a wrap for this show. I'll link to all that stuff in the show notes. Possibly a follow-up segment on uh, Otto Rahn and yes. the quest for the Holy Grail. We might do that when we come back uh, next season because this is the last plus episode for the season. We've got another show coming on Friday, of course, so we'll catch you then. Until then, have a great week. <laughs>